warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thanks for joining me today. We had such an outstanding hour with Dr. Glenn Pickering, and I'm not sure we have uh, tied up all the loose ends. I think I'm going to ask him to stay on for a little bit. Uh, so if he is uh, still uh, coming back into the building, I think we're going to nab him for a little bit more time. Um, we talked about uh, feeling overwhelmed and feeling hopeless, and sometimes th- these emotions, they come on, and we have to figure out a way to process. And Glenn was saying, let's not ignore our pain, let's claim it. And I look at the Psalms, Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 5, give heed to my groaning. Psalm 6, I'm languishing, my bones and my soul are troubled. I am weary with mourning. And of course, Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So th- these are real things that we, can, uh, we need to claim and just say, we're not going to ignore our pain, we're going to claim it. And Psalm uh, Romans 12 talks about, you know, we rejoice with those who rejoice we mourn with those who mourn, and we, we claim it publicly. It's not that we want to run around airing out all of our dirty laundry all the time, but we do want to be in a place where we live in community, and we take our concerns to people that we love and people that we trust, and uh, we ask good questions, and we love each other, and we, we do, uh, we're there for each other. So I think it's going to be uh, really wonderful to get uh, Glenn in for about another uh, uh, 30 minutes. We're going to talk to him some more. Because so many texts came in about uh, people in their situation that I think it would be good to continue. If you uh, still would like to make a comment or ask a question, please do by sending a text to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Glenn Pickering. Well, sometimes I can be persuasive and convincing, and it worked today because I said, Glenn, don't, don't go. Let's keep talking about this. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a subject that's challenging. It's difficult. And once you start opening that can, you want to make sure you try to type as many loose ends as possible because so many texts came in. So many listeners said, boy, I do have these struggles and I'm struggling with uh, feeling overwhelmed. I've got some despair. And the Bible's so clear that God wants us to bring all of these uh, emotions and thoughts and feelings to him. And the Bible's clear. We don't ignore our pain. We claim it. Um, and that is part of this wonderful mourning, grieving process. Uh, and if you go read Lamentations, you realize the Bible <laughs> produces a, a pretty amazing uh, book on how to process that, Glenn. Right. I, I, so funny you said that because, you know, we talked before about Proverbs and how so many of the Proverbs start out by claiming their struggle. But you're right, Lamentations is all about struggle. Read Job. I mean, it's like, I used to think Job was the weirdest book in the Bible. But now I get, no, it's in it for a reason. All of us are going to go through a time when for one reason or another, it just really does feel like everything goes wrong at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it leaves us thinking, what? <laughs> and it's helpful to know, yeah, that will happen. Yeah. Glenn, talk a little bit about pride and how that is so difficult and destructive when we're in a situation where we need help, but we have a hard time asking for it. Right. And when people offer it to us, we end up pushing it away. I, when yep. It's the last thing we want to do. Right. I, I think two things about that, because that's a great question. Thank you. Um, there have been times in my life when, you know, I talked to on a previous section about, you know, thinking, I got to take care of this myself. I got to do this. And I grew up in a way that did kind of encourage me to think that way. Um, 
you know, my dad died when I was 19, blah, blah, blah. So lots of reasons why I just thought, okay, I just have to take care of things myself. But then there have been times in my life when I got through it, there were so many things happening, it was so overwhelming, I kind of had to ask for help. And here's what I learned every single time, which now I, I don't even think the same, because I just know these three things are true. One, people want to help. People love to help. I used to think, well, I don't want to ask for help because I don't want to be a burden. And I realized that's a total lie that I used to tell myself. People love being helpful for the same reason that we all feel like we like to be helpful because it gives us a sense of purpose. If somebody says to me, hey, Glenn, I'm really struggling. You're one person I think could really help be helpful to me. I think, oh, really? You know what I mean? It's like it's so gratifying to feel like it can be helpful to somebody. So first thing I found out, people really want to help. Second, I realized the only thing that was ever keeping people from helping me before is I didn't ask. And, you know, we were talking before the show today about how whether I'm talking about my friends or about God, if I want help, I have to ask for it. That, and that how even, you know, Jesus is on the road to Jericho, right, in Mark 10, and uh, he passes blind bigger Bartimaeus who keeps yelling out, David, David, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd tells him, shut up, but he keeps yelling. Jesus brings him over. So here's this blind beggar standing in front of him, and Jesus said, what do you want? I'm like, well, golly, <laughs> I'm a blind beggar. Maybe we could start with that. But it's, until he's, Bartimaeus says, I want to receive my sight, then Jesus said, great, it's done. So God will not violate our free will, and neither will our friends. People want to help, and two, and I need to ask. Third, I'm always stunned not just by the amount of help that shows up, but where it comes from. In the past, if I asked 10 friends for help, I would probably think, I know which three or four are going to rise at that occasion. And here's what's going to happen. Out of those three or four, one or two actually do. A couple of them are busy. And then out of the other 10, two or three or four people will also rise at the occasion and be helpful in ways I never would have guessed. And I would didn't even know they were capable of it, to be honest. But it, So it's just always stunning who shows up. Mm-hmm. So... I just think, I just really get, we have a prideful thing, we push people away because we feel, I don't want to be vulnerable, or any crazy thought we have like that. But I think, honestly, the instant we drop that and just ask for help, A, we're going to find out people want to help, we're going to be overwhelmed by how many people want to help once we ask, and we'll even be shocked by who shows up Mm -hmm. and who doesn't. Yeah. All right, Glenn, here's a listener. Uh, How do I handle the pain of hope being lost? when it comes to dreams and hopes that did not come to pass or at the very least were put on hold. Yeah, we talked about that a little during the previous hour about sometimes the things we're sad about are a job or a person or whatever that we no longer have. But partly it's about, you know, the dreams we had for that job or that person or that part of our life that are not going the way we thought they were going to go. And, um, And I've come to believe this. All of us are going to go through four or five or six times in our life when we look around at our life and think, this is not what I had planned. Never did I envision I would be here at this place, in this situation. And I think it's helpful at those times to think, yeah, this probably wasn't the way you had it planned. And somehow we all have this picture in our head we go to school, we graduate, we get a job, we marry somebody, we have 2.6 kids, their life turns out great, our life turns out great, we live to be 87. 
But here's what I've come to understand. Nobody actually gets that life. Everybody's life is going to be some variation on that theme. And so when we sit around and think, well, this is not what I had planned, it's like, wait. Because nobody's life goes like that. Every life is going to be filled with things we literally didn't expect, couldn't expect. And it's going to leave us with that feeling, wow, this is not, this is not my vision. This is not what I thought. This is not what I had planned. And it's important to say two things. Yeah, you're probably right. And it's important that at that point to let myself be sad because there's a loss about that. But then start asking my question, okay, well, then now what? So if my life's not going to go quite the way I had pictured, I want to come to terms with that and think, yep, that seems to be true. And in my prayer time, I'm going to say to God, God, this is really not what I was thinking. I don't want to let myself be sad about that. But I also want to be open to then say, so show me what comes next. Because there is a next, I can promise you that. There's a powerful next step that's right in front of you. But because we're sad that that step didn't look the way we thought it would, we might not even see that it's there. And so it's important to be sad that it didn't turn out the way we thought and to be open to what might come next. Mm-hmm. Because something amazing will come next. Glenn, maybe you talk about the difference between, you know, a person who might be entertaining a fantasy versus a dream that had a, a, a workable plan. Right. That didn't work out. Right. I mean, some people say, well, my dreams didn't happen. I go, well, what were they? Right. And they say something and go, oh, that seems ridiculous because <laughs> it, it's, it's not a reachable goal. You didn't have a plan right. for that. Right. Yes. Sometimes people say, well, Glenn, I got to wait upon the Lord. Like that's a passive process. But I think what actually happens is just like in Matthew 7, I ask and knock and believe in the door shall be opened. What's going to happen is lots of interesting possibilities are going to come to me. Lots of doors will open that I couldn't have done myself. And then it's my job to do something with each of those possibilities, to take at least one step through each of those doors. And in that process, it will become more and more clear which one of those doors are the right one. Well, that's a very active and interactive process. And so if I think I'm just going to sit here and wait for that to happen, I think that's exactly how it doesn't go. Mm -hmm. What about people that... uh make excuses for other people doing that a lot with they're in, they're in a significant trouble issue. And then people around to make excuses for that person. Yep. I, um, you know, you've heard me talk before about how codependent I grew up and, um, part of being codependent is we take responsibility for other people's behavior or decisions. But if there's one thing that God has really showed me, is I literally can't be responsible for even one other person, but I am powerfully called to be responsible for my own self. So when we make excuses for that person, we're saying they don't have to be responsible for themselves. But that's not true. It violates everything that God put us on earth for, which is to try things out, fail at some things, learn from that, and then get to be a better and better person, a stronger and stronger Christian. Well, if I make excuses for people, they don't learn anything. And we're literally put on this earth to learn. It's one of the two reasons why we're here. Mm-hmm. So when I make excuses for people, I keep them from learning. I'm literally getting in the way of whatever it is that God's trying to do with their life. And so I need to understand all the stuff I used to do to try to be helpful or to be grace, graceful. I think, yeah, see, that's not helpful and it's not graceful. If somebody comes to me and says, Glenn, I tried this thing and it really failed. 
I'm not going to say, oh, no, I'm sure it didn't. That's just your way of thinking about it. I'm going to say, okay, cool. What did you learn in that failure? Not harshly. I don't want to be judgmental. But I also want to just ask that question. What did that failure teach you? Because our failures do teach us stuff. I have a little granddaughter who's learning how to walk. Well, let me tell you, every time she falls down, she learns something in that process. That's how it goes. That's how we grow as people. Yeah. If you have a question, let us know what it is. 877-93-FAITH. 877-933-2484. Dr. Glenn Pickering is in the studio. Let's take advantage of, of his wisdom and expertise. Be back in 90 seconds. Dr. Glenn Pickering, if you've got a question, 877-93-FAITH. Oh, looks like we got a caller. Looks like Rebecca from five feet away from me. Me? Yeah, that'd be you. Long-time listener. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for taking my call. Really long-time yeah. listener. <laughs> Glenn, I love what you just said about letting go of our expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that can be very hard for some people. Oh, um, right. By that, I mean me. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so I think my question is, I, I recognize I need to do that so that right. I can be open to what God actually has for me right. instead of this other thing I wish I had and I didn't. Right. So how can I be more open? How can I let go of the expectation and be more open to what God wants to do in my life? Um, that's a, such a good question. It's a good question. I, I just want to sit with it for a second. I just want all of our listeners to think about that. There's a thing in your life where you know what you do or you think or the way you act that you know is not helpful to you, that you don't eat right or you don't exercise as much as you should or you don't treat your wife or your kids the way you want to or you don't treat your colleagues at work as you want to or you find yourself in dumb patterns and you keep thinking, how could I be doing that again? And... Um, and then you hear some smart person on KTIS, who's Dr. Glenn Pickering, who says, well, here, do this instead. Now, it's important to understand this. At first, you won't do it at all. And then you'll do it poorly on occasion. And then you'll do it a little better, more frequently. And eventually, you'll get good at it. So often people hear, oh, God has showed me that I need to change this thing. And I'm working at it. But with the subtext of the question, but why aren't I good at that by now? And I just think that really isn't how God changes any of us. God's way of changing us and transforming us is so gentle and so gradual. My wife and I love to sit in Minnehaha Park, you know, right, with a little creek just before it goes over the falls. There's all these rocks in the water, and if you pick one out, you'll notice how smooth it is. Because that water is just very gently over and over that rock, just gradually smoothing it down. And I think, uh-huh, that didn't take a day. That didn't take a week. That didn't even take a year. <laughs> that took a long, gentle time of smoothing that rock down. And that's how God works with us. So sometimes people are like, okay, well, now I get it. I should be better. And I think, see, that's a really mean thought. It's a really judgmental thought. I, you guys have heard me say on the radio before about how I think everything God created has two things in common which is that it changes gradually. So if I see something in my life, I know for absolute fact that I need to do it differently. It's important to understand, yep, and I will start doing it differently, and getting good at that will be a very gradual, gentle process. So instead of judging myself, like, why am I still bad at that? Why does that thought still go through my head? Why aren't I any better at that? Why is this so hard for me? I want you guys just to be way more graceful to yourself and think, okay, God has shown me this really big deal thing in my life that needs to be different. 
Okay, good. Good for you being open to it. Good for you to be, like Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. Be willing to be set free. Just know that just like it took a lot of bricks to build that wall up, it's going to take a long time, one brick at a time, to take that wall down, and that that's how God does it. So it's just important not to say, well, why aren't I better yet? It's just important to notice all the little steps you make along the way that are better. Every time you do let go or every time you do ask somebody else for help or every time you are open for feedback or every time somebody is helpful to you and you gracious and say thank you instead of telling you you don't need it. Just notice every single step you make in that direction. So instead of asking yourself, why am I not arrived yet, like a little kid in the backseat, how many more miles? <laughs> it's important to just notice all the things you are doing. And give yourself a little credit, like, wow, I'm taking some steps. You know that little one-year-old granddaughter of mine is learning how to walk, like I said? She doesn't take one step, fall down, and think, oh, crap, why aren't I not running yet? Mm-hmm. Thinks, okay, I did pull myself up off the couch, and I was standing for about four seconds, which is pretty great. And we all think that's pretty great. <laughs> We're all excited yeah. and clapping and telling yeah. her how great the she's doing. The cheering and the videotaping indicates we think it's great. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just important to be the same way with ourselves. Be just a gentle thing. Okay. This will be a whole series of steps it takes to learn this. And this will be harder for me than the average person. That's why God has put this thing on my heart. Other people have things that are hard for them that God has put on their heart. This one's harder for me than the average person. So somebody might say, oh, just let go like I do. And I think, uh-huh. You can say that because that's not your issue. You have your own issue that's way harder to, for you to deal with than it is for me to deal with because that's your issue and not mine. So we all have things that are big deal things that God's working on us for. All of us need to claim with that one or two or three things that God is really trying to teach us. And we all need to be super, super gentle with ourselves in that process to know, and God will do a work in me. I will be transformed. And that's a real gradual process. That's the sanctification. You know, justification can happen in an instant. That's the easy part, inviting God into my life. Then the rest of my life is going to be lived in sanctification, trying to get better and better at living out what I knew in that moment. So... Just to understand, I can get the concept in a minute, just like I can choose to be justified in a minute. And then living that out, that will literally be a lifelong process. Mm-hmm. And it's okay that it is. Glenn, when couples come into your office for yeah. counseling, what seems to be the issue that rises to the top? Um, well, they're very likely to play tag with each other, as you know, if you read my book. Which I, I have read your have. book. I know. I love that yeah. about you. So thank you very much. <laughs> Because what I know is this. We want to be in marriage kind of relationships, and whether you're dating or engaged or married, it doesn't matter. It's all true. Well, we feel valued and cared for by the other one. We want home to be a place where, hey, when I'm here, I'm safe. Not just safe like nothing will happen, but safe like safe to be myself, safe to tell the truth, safe to be my real self, safe to actually show up as my whole self, my struggles, my victories, all of it. And that means that I have to know that when I talk to that other person in my life, I'm not going to get judged, not going to get criticized, not going to get told why I did it wrong. Why did you do that? Um, That they're going to listen, they're going to pay attention, they're going to ask questions where they actually care about the answer. And I'll feel like, wow, you actually want to get to know me. That's what I was trying to say at the end of our last segment about when Jesus said that the goal of marriage is that the two shall become as one. It's like if we get it right, then at the end there's this deep knowingness. Not that we're the same or that we become clones of each other somehow. 
It's more that we can look at each other and think, I get you. Like, I really, really get you. And that's what we want. That's what Jesus said we should want. So the big thing is I see people interact with each other in a way that does not make them feel like the other person wants to get to know me, cares about me, thinks I'm great, wants to know more about me. And every time we judge each other or criticize each other or tell each other what to do, we're accidentally sending the other person a message, this is not going to be that kind of place, which is really sad. So mostly when people come in, I mean, they're going to have a number of struggles. That will almost certainly be one of them. Mm-hmm. But the I get you comment seems yep. pretty romantic, doesn't it? Honestly, it so is. It's like really, really this true knowing of you. Like, wow. Like like we're known by God in that same sort of way. Like it's sacred. Glenn, thanks for staying a little bit longer. It's yeah, really I'm... nice to continue this uh, discussion. It's been great. And there's been so many nice comments that have come in. Oh, cool. Um, I love yeah. that. Um, just got another one. Such a good conversation. So thank you. Yes. Dr. Glenn really Pickering welcome. has been my guest. GlennPickering.com with two N's, G-L-E-N-N, P-I-C-K-E-R-I-N-G.com is his website. He offers this uh, lovely offer of uh, going on and getting a free 20-minute consultation with him. All you do is fill out a form and he'll contact you and you can have that conversation. We'll take a short break and be right back. Back to the show, Dr. Everett Piper is my guest. He's former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and now he's columnist for the Washington Times and the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. As I go through his list of articles on the Washington Times, boy, are they meaty with a side of Bernays sauce on the side. Everett, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on again. It's always my pleasure. Yeah, it's so nice. Okay, I'm going through some of the articles you've written for the Washington Times, and boy, you dig in and you hit hard, and I just uh, love it. Um, well, I I try to give everybody something to of substance to read, and I try not to leave anybody in in doubt as to what I think and why. So hopefully, I've accomplished that. Yeah. Now, as I was looking at uh, some of the stories and the articles, and I I found this one very interesting uh, as we look at the Democratic uh, debate from last night, and I was thinking of your take on Mayor Pete's uh, Bible study, how it ignores sexual immorality, and he just sort of rewrites and and rewords Scripture to make it work for him, doesn't it? Well, he does. I mean, a better title for that article would be Mayor Pete's um, Bible study ignores the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he he, he uh, claims to be a Christian. 
And I know that some people will suggest, well, it's not my job or your job or anybody else's to judge someone else's Christianity. Well, I, I disagree with that. I mean, if somebody claims to be a Christian, they, by definition, are claiming to be born again, not born that way. They should be defined by their Lord and not their libido. In other words, you don't define yourself by your desires. You don't hyphenate your Christianity by your propensity or your proclivities to sin. I mean, what would be next? Are we going to hyphenate our Christianity by saying that we are an adulterous Christian or that we are a polygamous Christian or that we are a polyamorous Christian or that we are a pedophile Christian or that we are a murdering Christian? To hyphenate our Christianity by virtue of our inclinations to sin is not biblical. And that's what I'm trying to suggest in this article by referencing multiple Bible verses which call upon us to be born again, to become new creations in Christ, to be transformed, not transgendered, to be defined by our Lord and not by our sexual libido. Mm -hmm. And Christians, you say in the article, by definition, are required to confess their sins, not affirm them. That's not what we're hearing today in the world, uh, Everett. Exactly. I mean, we have these affirming churches, and, you know, I think I have the right, and you have the right to call out our own. I'm very critical of higher education, for example, because it's my industry, and I have the right to critique my own. And I think evangelicals, likewise, have the right, if not the obligation, to, to critique our own. And the evangelical church that defines itself as emergent, or defines itself as affirming, I have all sorts of red flags that are being waved and all sorts of bells and whistles that are buzzing and going off and alarms that are being sounded and suggesting that, wait a second, what is it that you're affirming? Are you affirming another person's sin? Are you affirming your own? Are you watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ to the point where rather than being set apart for holiness unto the Lord, you're actually defining yourself by your sexual inclinations or any other bad habit or proclivity that you might have that the Bible itself says you're not supposed to do. So, Everett, if I'm following ungodly desires and yet claiming I'm a Christian, the the rest of the world probably is too biblically illiterate to know the difference. Oh, no question. We live in a biblically illiterate culture right now. There's no question. So what is the obligation of the follower of Jesus in such a culture? I would argue Paul give us, gives us that example. Peter, James, Jude, John, give us the example of how a follower of Christ is supposed to react and act and speak and write in a pagan culture. And we're obligated to be salt to a rotting culture and light to a darkened world. And if we, if we hide our light under a bushel, then nobody cares. And if the salt loses its savor, it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. The church should be salty, and the church must be bold and clear and illuminate the darkness of the culture that we live within. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting, the selective, selected verses that people will use they don't ever seem to use the do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You don't ever hear that. Exactly. You don't ever, it, you don't, you don't ever hear the, you know, put off the old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. You don't hear that very often. No. So what we have today is a Christianity 
uh, Pete Buttigieg's version of it. And unfortunately, some of the affirming evangelical churches and emergent evangelical churches are so watered down in the gospel that they don't even give people the good news that when you are when you come to Jesus Christ, that you are born again. Again, I'll repeat what I said earlier. You're not born that way any longer when you're in Christ. You are born again. The old self is dead, and you have a new self, a new creation in Christ where you're defined by his lordship, and you are holy within that uh, walk with Christ. That's a progressive walk towards sanctification and holiness, rather than being too easily satisfied, to quote C.S. Lewis, with mud pies in the back alley, could have a vacation at the beach. Again, quoting C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Everett, how much of this is lost in translation, even with Christians, because we've rejected absolute truth in favor of subjective interpretation? A lot of the Christian community today, when you ask them about basic orthodox views of Christianity, will disagree with them. For example, is Jesus the only way, the truth, and the life? Is he the only way of salvation to heaven? Many people who identify, quote-unquote, as Christians will suggest that there are multiple ways to heaven and Jesus isn't the only way, even though Jesus himself says he is the only way, Christianity being a very exclusive religion in terms of the exclusive nature of the gospel, the exclusive fact that Jesus is the only way unto heaven and unto the Father. So what we have today is churches that have become so vanilla, and the teaching and the preaching within the churches is so, um, how should I say it? Uh, the inerrancy of Scripture is no longer a fact within many churches, and the Bible can be socially deconstructed and then reconstructed in the image of contemporary culture. So rather than being in the world but not of it, we are actually in the world and of it because the world is defining us rather than the Bible because we've uh, lost the highest definition and the highest appreciation of the Word of God, inerrant infallible, authoritative, and objectively true. Mm -hmm. And then when you start to deal with this subjective interpretation, you start to hear things like, well, my God doesn't, or my faith, and it's almost like, well, now here's your version. Whenever I hear anybody say what you just said, (laughs) I automatically want to ask, are you worshiping the God you see in the mirror or the God you find in the Bible? Which God is it that is your God? Because when it becomes the subjective definition, it's a worship of self rather than a worship of an immutable, unchangeable, omnipotent God. It's narcissism. It's narcissist leaning over the edge of the pool, gazing at his own image, being so infatuated, in love with himself, in love with the godlike nature, the beauty he sees in his own image, he slips, he falls in, and he drowns. That's the nature of our culture today, but it unfortunately is the nature of so many of our churches. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Dr. Piper, I certainly don't want to pick on Pete, Mayor Pete, but uh, he has surfaced with some things that has gotten the attention of a lot of Christians because he claims to be one himself, and then he goes on to really insult 20 million of the, of the nation's Democrats who define themselves as pro-life. Exactly. Now, the data I have is that there are 20 million Democrats defining themselves as pro-life Democrats. Now, I have to 
ask myself this question. Why are you still part of the Democratic Party if you're pro-life? Because the party, by, ne- by definition, is not pro-life. But nonetheless, we still hear that 20 million Democrats say they're pro-life. Well, Pete Buttigieg just came out and argued that you can terminate a baby and should be able to terminate a baby up until the point it's exiting the birth canal. And then he goes on to argue this, that a baby is not human until it draws its first breath. And he says that that's biblical. Well, that's garbage. That's not biblical. But nonetheless, he is claiming that you are not a human being even after you've been born if you haven't drawn the first breath. So what does that mean? Let's take this idea to its logical conclusion. That means that if you are wiggling and warm in in a surgical pan after being born, but yet haven't drawn your first breath because the doctor hasn't slapped you on the fanny and caused you to take that gasp of air, the doctor can terminate you because the mother finds you to be inconvenient and unwanted. This is Pete Buttigieg's view, and this is the view of the Democratic Party. Oh, Everett, that just makes me squirm to think this little baby struggling for its first breath and that somehow it's you can terminate it. You know, all these abortion laws make me crazy because, you know, you can terminate up to 20 weeks. And I want to argue you can't you shouldn't terminate it all ever. Right. Who defines life? Again, we get back to who's God? Who's God in this picture? Pete Buttigieg is declaring himself to be as God, if you will, because he's defining life rather than God defining life. And anybody else, anybody else, whether they claim to be Christian or not, who rests the authority away from God to define what's living and what's not, and takes that authority unto themselves, is putting themselves in a very, very arrogant position, and it ultimately results in the loss of human dignity and the loss of human life for those people who are subjected to your arbitrary claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everett, I would love to get your uh, your take on the feeling that our country is starting to have in terms of, you know, the idea that this, this uh, coronavirus could hit, and it could be not a matter of if, they say, but a matter of when. And there's a certain panic that I think some people have, and other people go, meh, there's no need to panic. God's in control. What? Uh, how would you be instructing a group of 300 people in front of you asking that question? Well, first of all, I think we need to be wise, and I think we need to prepare. I mean, Joseph, we, if you listen to the story of Joseph, he was uh, put in a precarious that he didn't like. His brother sold him into slavery. He found himself in a foreign land, an enemy land, and what does he do? Rises some level of authority. Recognizes that God is probably going to judge this culture because it's a pagan culture, and that he should help people prepare. So that's seven years of vision. I don't think it's a story of panic. I think that's a story of faith. And that if that has given us to understand the times, then we should prepare accordingly, not because we're going to her down and be and, and, and disengage from culture, but because we want to be prepared to help other people through times of crisis. My feeling is that crisis is always good. Crisis is always good. All things work to the, excuse me, all things work together for the good that love the Lord. What others intend for evil, God will always redeem for good. So we need to recognize that we are here for such as this. 
and that we will be used of God to help people see that Christianity is real and the gospel message is true. We prepare, set aside a few extra provisions if you think that that is appropriate, but be prepared to them to perpetuate the gospel and to seek on behalf of the body of Christ, if indeed there is reason for helping other people. Mm-hmm. Dr. Edward Piper is my guest. He's a former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and as a columnist for the Washington Times. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with more of uh, Dr. Everett Piper. show. My guest, Dr. Everett Piper, is a columnist for the Washington Times, former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. So he loves education. So Everett, speaking of education, tell me your thoughts about Bernie Sanders praising Fidel Castro for his literacy program. (laughs) I thought that would make you laugh. (laughs) And obviously, this, this goes back to Bernie being a fan of Fidel Castro 20, 30 years ago. But yet in the 60 Minutes interview this past week, he actually doubled down and said that we can't just condemn everything that Fidel Castro did in Cuba, because after all, he had an excellent literacy program. Well, uh, Mao Zedong had a great literacy program, too, with his Little Red Book and the Cultural Revolution. And we might argue that Lenin and, and uh, Pol Pot and even Hitler in his Hitler youth and the Nazi youth and the Third Reich youth system had a great literacy program. So it is just absurd for Senator Sanders to, to suggest that we should stop criticizing a despot who has killed hundreds, if not thousands, of dissidents, imprisoned those people that dared to speak out against him. But, oh, he's not all that bad because he had a great literacy program. You might call it a program of propaganda rather than a literacy program. And by the way, these Cubans weren't running around as knuckle-dragging, illiterate dopes before Fidel Castro took over. They actually had a system of education in the country that was doing quite well, thank you, before communism took the freedom of the people away to actually read what they want to read and write what they want to write and speak the way they want to speak. Bernie Sanders is dangerous. Mm -hmm. So with so much uh, venomous rhetoric going around, and as a Christian, how do we best engage with uh, our friends and our coworkers and and people who have differing opinions uh, and remain civil and loving? I, you speak the truth with a measure of grace, you know, truth and grace, grace and truth, and you speak it with love. But love is not enablement. Love is not tolerance. I was on the Bill O'Reilly show a couple years ago, and we got into a couple issues, and he led me into a debate about tolerance. And I interrupted Mr. O'Reilly, and I said, Mr. O'Reilly, on your anniversary, did you send your wife an I tolerate you card? And he was quiet for a second, and I responded, and I said, I would suggest you probably didn't, because that wouldn't have ended very well. And the reason, Mr. O'Reilly, is this. 
Tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance says, I really don't care about you. I don't even like you, and I don't necessarily love you. I'll tolerate you. Now go do what you want. But love says, I care deeply about you enough to stand in your way and say, stop. Love, Christian charity, is a superior virtue, whereas tolerance is always inferior. So we need to recognize when we engage culture with love, that love is not enabling. Love is not affirming all the time. Love is not a great big kumbaya hug. Love cares enough to stand in the way of people that are hurting themselves and say, stop. And I believe that's the Christian's obligation within culture at large at this point in time. Yeah, getting uh, more challenging, though, isn't it, for believers to lead with love? Yes. And another, let's take love another step. We hear all the time from people like Pete Buttigieg and most of the others within the Democratic Party, and unfortunately some within our own churches, that love is love, and we don't have any right to step in the way of someone who just wants to love another person the way they want to love. I was actually approached at a church conference once in the foyer after I was done speaking, and a young pastor asked me, how can we respond to this love is love claim within our culture? And I looked at him, and I just asked a basic rhetorical question. I asked, are love and sex synonymous? Do they mean the same? And he looked at me with confusion, and I said, well, no, they don't. Love and sex are not synonymous terms because I love a lot of people that I don't have sex with. And I hope you do too. At least I would like to believe that you love people that you choose not to have sex with. So they can't mean the same thing. We need to educate the culture around us on what basic terms mean today. We need to educate them on what real love is. It's not synonymous with sex because we love lots of people that we have no inclination or desire to have sex with, and sex is not synonymous with love. They are two different terms, and they need to be defined accordingly. Mm-hmm. So, Everett, what are some of your observations about uh, the Republican uh, Party and what they're doing or not doing? Well, I, I've had a very difficult time bringing myself to support Donald Trump in the last election. I didn't believe him. I did not believe he was pro-life because of his past. I did not appreciate his past sexual uh, escapades and his boasting about it in his books. I don't, to this day, appreciate his um, vulgarity and his juvenile tweets. I think I have the right and the obligation to call all those things out for what they are. They're wrong. However, in the United States, we don't vote for a king. We don't vote for people. We vote for principles. Oz Guinness once told me when I was studying under him at Oxford, he said, Everett, if you want freedom, always vote for the covenant. Never vote for the hierarchy. He says the the, uh, European Union, Belgium and France are hierarchical. The Democratic Party is hierarchical, top down. But the Magna Carta, the Constitution, and frankly, the Republican Party platform is covenantal, bottom-up. If you want freedom, vote for the covenant. You don't vote for a king. You vote for the covenant in the United States. And there's no question which party is more covenantal versus hierarchical. Therefore, I 
will vote for Donald Trump without apology because he has proven himself to be pro-life. I was wrong. And he's also proven himself to be a defender of my religious freedom. And for those two reasons alone, I will vote for the man. Mm -hmm. Another question just came in from a listener. Any comments on the Second Amendment and being a Christian? I think a Christian has the right and the obligation to defend his family. I see nothing in Scripture that tells me. Now, I, I, I'm sure there's a pacifist out there or several pacifists out there who want to argue that uh, turn the other cheek means that I should not have a gun and I should not defend my family if, a, if a, a rapist is breaking into my home to do harm to my wife and my kids. I disagree. I think um, I believe in Augustinian theory of a just war when it's my obligation to stand in the way of Hitler and tell him to stop killing Jews. And I take that philosophy seriously when it comes to my own community, too. We live in a broken world. There are times when we have to defend the helpless. And defending Jews who are being incinerated in furnaces is not unbiblical. In fact, I think it's my obligation. Mm-hmm. So the Pope said to the Catholics for Lent, give up trolling. You think that's a good idea? <laughs> I didn't hear that one. Give oh. up trolling? Yeah, give up trolling. Quit being so uh, Meaning, uncivil on the on the internet, social media. Uh, I agree with that. I'm I'm a, I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, probably <laughs> at times. Donald Trump Donald Trump should give up trolling and show, show show so should I and so should everybody else. That's not a bad idea. I'm not a huge Pope Francis fan, but he may be right on that one. Yeah. Um. So did you uh, watch the debate last night? Just curious. I read about it this morning, but I didn't have the uh, patience to actually um, endure it on TV. Yeah, um, I, I saw some of the highlights, and it was uh, it has gotten to be quite a battle. Well, I understand it was quite embarrassing, interrupting each other and whatnot. But again, here's the issue. Every single one of the Democrats believes in abortion up to the point of birth. And a couple of them are actually arguing up until the point where you draw your first breath. Mm-hmm. How in the world can any Christian worth his salt that has any sense of Scripture support a party that believes in that? How can a Christian support a party that is celebrating sodomy as a person's identity? And how can any Christian support a party that is working aggressively to breach the wall separating in church and state, enter into the walls of the church, and actually start telling the church how to practice its sacraments? That is not a party that I can support. Yeah, but there's still Christians out there that have those feelings, so it must be that the Holy Spirit has not convicted them yet. Well, let's go to the Bible and see what the Bible tells us about religious freedom, the dignity of human life, and our obligation to stand for those things, not just for ourselves, fight for them for our own families, but fight for those things for everybody else around us. I'm going to vote for the greatest measure of freedom that I can get out of any election, and there's no question who's representing covenantal freedom at this point versus hierarchical top-down oppression. Yeah. Everett, thank you so much for doing the show. So nice to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Honored. Have a great night. Dr. Everett Piper has been my guest. You know him as the former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and is now a columnist for the Washington Times and the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks, everyone, for... uh, being part of uh, my listening audience and supporting Faith Radio and being such wonderful uh, listeners and supporters. Just love you like crazy. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow.